Hello and welcome back to the Folk Podcast, episode 83. So we have a new guest for you here today. Um, we have Jason here and he is, uh, a, well, I just let Jason introduce himself. I think that's the best thing to do. So Jason, just go ahead and introduce yourself and give everyone your elevator speech about yourself. Hey, I'm Jason Gardner. I'm a retired SEAL. I spent 30 years in the SEAL teams. Um, I I was an enlisted guy maxed out as the command master chief of SEAL Team 5, and then I was the master chief of Special Operations Task Force West over in Iraq, and then our training detachment. And so now I am a leadership instructor with Echelon Front, and I go around talking, and I live in a super rural area, and I'm in a lot of the same stuff that that everybody listening and the guys running this podcast are into and kind of discovered them on YouTube, so... That's who I am, kind of a homesteader, SEAL person, father, husband, just trying to get better. Well, I remember, uh, the, you know, really the first time you kind of reached out to me, you said something along the lines of like, sometimes I don't know if I'm a dwarf or a hobbit or something like that. <laughs> so I, uh, um, I saw the YouTube video that you broke off with the Huga and the, the Hobbit stuff. And you open that up with your like, I'm a Hobbit. And I'm like, dang it, you know what I think I'm... <laughs> they shot you uh, one of my Instagram posts, which is pretty awesome post from my 2009 deployment to Afghanistan. And it was me giving my guys a, a pre-op speech. And that, that, that deployment to Afghanistan was, of my five combat deployments was the craziest. And, uh, I'm giving a speech right before we get on the helicopters. It's good. It, I, I had it forever. And then I had a, a film buddy that was able to blur everybody's faces out and then put subtitles on it. So I figured I could kind of get your attention with that. And then said, when I sent it, I go, I'm pretty much Hobbit. And I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe after watching this, I might be a little bit dwarf. Yeah. And I think I told you that too. I'm like, yeah, I think, I think you're a dwarf <laughs> if you're here giving a battle speech, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I think uh, I did trade it in the walking stick for a sword. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I do want to open it up to uh, Ian and Caleb, who uh, probably know a little bit less about you, to uh, kind of ask those basic questions before we kind of move into the the meat and potatoes of the conversation. Okay. Yeah, Caleb, you want to go first this time because I know most of my stuff is going to be focused primarily around like some of the military aspect. Because I did ten years um, Air Force, I was with uh, Air Force Special Operations the entire time. So awesome. Uh, so the thing I'm curious about is what got you into the faith or and like how long have you been practicing? So I here here's here's how it works for me. I was raised in the Catholic religion and it, it just wasn't working. And it there was a lot of things that didn't uh, while I enjoyed how you know all the gothicness of it and all that it, it bothered me. And then um, listen to Neil Gaiman's uh, Norse Mythology, which I thought was a pretty good book. And then we started sending out Yule's cards instead of Christmas cards a couple of years ago. And there was just a lot of things from the, the paganism that, that rings more true and is in line with being closer to nature. And instead of saying like, hey, this nature is mine and I own it, but looking at it from an aspect of being part of it, I, I really enjoy, and I really enjoy 
the way the gods are laid out because they're not cut and dry. Like it's, you, you can't, Odin isn't a nice guy per se. There's, there's, there, he has a lot of, there's a lot, lot to him that, that would make more sense as far as you're looking at how, you know, nature is and, and, and all. And then the interaction between them all is, is, is really cool. So that's what kind of pulled me toward it. Were you still uh, active duty when you started practicing the Was this after you had you had retired and gotten out? Oh no, it's something that well, towards the end of my career, it's something that I think that's right when we started. I've, I've been retired for three years, okay, but I think that's when we started looking into it. And and so what? Hey, what I do is I just look at everything. So I pay. I I've recently been real interested in some of the Native American stuff and um, looking at what. And I tell you what, it's very similar to paganism. Go figure. And um, Eckhart Tolle, the Four Agreements. There's all these different concepts where they're just laying out, hey, these are virtuous ways to live that will just lead to a better, happier life for you and for everybody around you as well. Well, and that's something that I've been on for a while now. Now, again, maybe it comes from my explorations into global shamanism is, but if you look at like the first world religions, like the first religions of each society that kind of popped up in every area, they had all such similar understanding of how everything worked. And so to me, it just makes sense that they had the original idea of how the world worked and how spirituality works and religion. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't until fairly recently that the modern uh, monotheistic religions have taken over also coincidentally around the same time as capitalism and globalization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really interesting to see all of those places where they're, they're essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. I guess like regarding some of like the more like basic questions, I mean, do you have any, any particular, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people pretty curious and stuff like that i mean myself personally like what deities do you find yourself working with primarily just out of curiosity so, like i i wouldn't call myself a practicing pagan but the, mm -hmm. I, the ones that i find myself the most inspired by um you know it's i really like thor and i got I, we've got horses we've got norwegian fjords mine is is named fenrir and dang it, I feel like Fenrir's a little bit misunderstood because he really wasn't doing much other than getting bigger and stronger when they opted to trick him and tie him up. Yeah. Um, and so they, there's a possibility where they might have taken a situation that would have been wouldn't have been bad and, and made it worse. Anyway, you know, that's it. Uh, when I played Dungeons and Dragons, as a kid, and I do now still uh, with the family, I was mm -hmm. really into Tyr just because he is like law and order and justice and all that. And then he was the only one hard enough to give up his right hand um, in order for them to get Fenrir re restrained. It's almost, you know, like I've mentioned some of this stuff before regarding Fenrir as Jacob yeah, you, and Caleb. You and, well, you and Ian are going to be best friends with your understanding of Fenrir. <laughs> oh, he was just a little puppy dog and no one understood him. <laughs> oh, he's going to grow up and eat the god I follow all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I guess uh, the uh, last question I've gotten of um, 
before we start diving into other stuff is um, I know you said you're not really a, a practicing pagan, um, but with your, your long military career and everything like that, I know for myself, like I, I've got not my, not personally myself, but like my, uh, I have a lot of military members in my family and, all, and a lot of that uh, kind of tied in with a lot of ancestral work that I've ended up doing. Uh, have you ever dabbled into uh, uh, ancestor veneration? I watched the YouTube video on that and, and I, I haven't, no. I would say like, I was, uh, I was I, curious I can't about that when you discussed it and, and I've looked into my history, you know, and, and I've dug into, like, I, I've tried to understand what was my draw to the, the Mount living. I live up here in the mountains, you know, and, and, this is where I feel at home. I felt a, a gravitational pull to this place that I felt was absolutely genetic. And, uh, you know, when I did my genetics, it's, I've got a lot of uh, Slavic and Germanic in me and some Swedish. And so I guess that kind of lays out. Yeah. Um, you know, like one thing I remember reading in that, that book, The Heathenry in the Sea is, uh, uh, Dan from there, who was a, a submariner, connected to his ancestors who were also in the Navy, uh, the British Navy as well. Um, and he had some way of like honoring them. Uh, and that's kind of what I've been kind of going down recently is looking into my family's heritage and something I, I talked about in that video is just like specific ancestors. It's like, okay, I kind of want to venerate them in some way and try to connect with them. And that's what I've been doing kind of uh, recently at gatherings. And it's definitely developed some for a form of warmth uh, you know, from the, you know, around the fire, you feel like you're almost like someone's got a hand on your shoulder and stuff like that. Uh, so ancestral veneration is something that I'm still pretty new to, but I, I definitely think it has a, has a pretty interesting effect, you know, having you already feel connected to the land, you know, for a way that you almost describe as an ancestral connection. So I'm, I'm limited there in that. Um, so my, my grandfather on my mother's side is a German immigrant and he was a farmer and so I really like working with the earth and the um, working with it in a way that's, you know, more holistic. I'm, I'm losing the word right now for the type of uh, stuff, the permaculture type of work. And then he, he was doing back in the forties the, the and the fifties, uh, high intensity grazing practices, which are fairly new now and, and really kind of coming up to the date. My, my, my dad was a Marine um, and my, my grandfather was on, on his side was just kind of a guy. What I like to do too is look at some of these historical figures. One of them is like Crazy Horse and another is uh, Joshua Chamberlain from the Civil War who are just both like super amazing and interesting people. And then stealing bits of them to add to myself if that makes sense even though i'm not connected to them mm. it, by straight genetics i i feel like by a sense of uh inspiration and spirit i am well and i think that goes straight to like hero veneration is learning from the heroes and honoring right. the heroes of our story um and something they'll especially being from kentucky like daniel boone is still a very celebrated and almost like mythological icon around here um, and I would argue a lot of people here in Kentucky honor him as like a hero and like do some form of hero veneration still. Sure. Uh, so I one question. So one question I was actually going to ask you, and this is something I've been actually playing with for a while. 
uh, having kind of started traveling those threads of just, you know, learning more about uh, Norse paganism and, and just pagan practices in general, do you think it would have affected you differently if you discovered it earlier into your military career? Um, yeah. Yeah, because it would have rounded me out as a person. Um, I One thing that I had a difficulty doing was going to war with hatred in my heart. And so the the... <laughs> The problem with that is it doesn't allow you to think clearly and then the potential for you to make mistakes. And there was a few of them I made on the battlefield that, that almost cost me my life and, and, and the rest of the guys in the, my SEAL task unit. Um, and because that infects everything and it infects the way you think. And if I'd been more like, you know, Joshua Chamberlain, who he was at peace with his heart and the decisions he was making on the battlefield were completely free of any animosity or hatred. And understanding paganism a little bit better would have helped me with that because there's, you, you know, so in paganism, it's the, who's the devil? There's not really one person that is this ultimate evil. Everybody is actually kind of like us as people where they have different flaws that would have been a helpful way for me to a lens to look at the world through um, having gone to combat. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember you, uh, Ian and you and I have talked about it, how we've just like, they've changed the the term for uh, like the, the enemy to basically dehumanize them. Cause before, you know, cause yeah. now they're just like, what is it target? Like you're supposed to say- It's like, it depends on what branch, like with the Air Force, it was like just contact contact That's yeah literally what you know and i mean as far as i'm aware each branch or units will probably have different things but yeah it, it is at a certain degree dehumanized the enemy so that's why you, you start to have individuals that start to have you know like ptsd and stuff like that because they've removed that aspect they don't know how to handle that kind of stuff you know anymore because they have taken the human aspect out of it the, uh, the other thing too is, is you go do a six or eight month deployment and every stressor is a fight or flight stressor, mm -hmm. then your body reinforces all those neural pathways and everything that goes with it. Then you come home and somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're, you don't know how to tell the difference anymore between a real stressor and something that just doesn't matter. And then boom, guy cuts you off in traffic and here comes the adrenaline, up goes the cortisol and your temper's just gone mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's out of hand. So that, does, that doesn't yeah. help you. Um, the other thing is, is when you start, the, the flip side is your behavior can get completely out of control if you dehumanize people. Well, and I, I can't remember, I think we were talking about in a podcast was that statistic that like only 20% of people actually fired their gun in World War One or something like that, which is obscene. And so that was one of the things the military looked at. They're like, how can we get soldiers to fire the gun more? Because they look across the field and what they see is another human and someone that very well could be like kinsmen, especially if you're in Europe, you know, they don't want to fire their gun. And so that's when they started like finding out, way, figuring out ways to dehumanize the enemy. Yeah, good grief. And could you believe the Civil War? where we got documented cases of brother on brother and cousin yeah. on cousin at different battles where they're, it, it's, uh, it's, it's mind boggling. We're just really lucky that, that we, we live in the, the United States right now. And, you know, we're not over in Ukraine or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
uh, as I where... travel one country over from the Ukraine in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there you'll you'll be good to go. It's just it's oh, yeah. heartbreaking to see what's going well, on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know one thing that's going to be really hard for me is that uh, uh, Tina has been messaging me about it is when she goes to the main train station now, there's always Ukrainian refugees there now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. damn, that's going to be, you know, I've lived in the United States. I've never had to experience anything like that. So I think that's going to definitely be an eye-opening experience is seeing, you know, the effects of a war. You know, I've never seen that living in the United States all my yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I didn't think that we would see it in Europe in our lifetime. And I'll, I'll go ahead and, and include Ukraine in Europe. So I, I think, though, at the end of the day, that uh, the good will triumph, you know, because the, the, the they're doing where they over centralize their command and they're just being brutal and they actually they don't care about their soldiers. And so that just isn't going to work over the long run. Right. Well, I mean, Ian and I've talked about this, you know, we don't have to go into the Ukraine tangent too much here. But yeah, I mean, I was because I know an extensive amount about Russian history because I took a lot of Russian classes in college. And this has been one of their problems since the dawn of their time is they do not know how to actually uh, build a good supply chain for their military. It literally happens every single war they ever have. They do not have a supply chain at all. And so they can't sustain long conflict. Logistics wins wars. So on a nice side, Alexander the Great said, "My logisticians are a sour lot because they know if I, my campaign fails, they're the first ones I'll slay." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so slight, you know, slight combination there. So I think one of the reasons, you know, I, I would say you've probably connected to uh, to heathenry and paganism, at least as as a philosophy, is probably because of the leadership. I mean, because there's a lot of lessons in leadership within the writings, the Habermas, and things like that. Would you mm-hmm. would you say that's correct? Yes, and I think the thing that popped me over uh, over the edge too was uh, Tear with their song "Hold the Heathen Hammer High." Oh, okay, yeah, the band here, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I've heard that. I had to listen to it after this. <laughs> Write <laughs> yeah, it down. <laughs> yeah, they, they've got, the, that's, that's the, the first time I heard that song, then I had to listen to it like 50 times in a row and dug it. And then it was like, well, let me start looking into more of this. Well, that's something yeah, we like discovered. That the first time I listened to High <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's something that I've discovered. I mean, obviously through the community is, you know, having people come together that all have this understanding of paganism and heathenry. And it doesn't even have to people that necessarily follow the faith. We've had a ton of people come to gatherings now that don't even practice the religion. They just come because the environment that we create by following these deities is an environment of mutual respect, of love, of gift giving. I mean, like, it's just insane Mm -hmm. the generosity that comes out of people that uh, start practicing this faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And there's something that's just so interesting about it at, at its core that it just it just draws me to it. Uh, so with that, well, let's move from uh, Jason, the Jason, the warrior and the dwarf to now Jason, the hobbit. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things I was actually surprised when I asked you for a list of topics here um, was the one that you focus on the, uh, the most was uh, raising daughters. And I thought mm-hmm. this would be a good co- uh, topic for Caleb as well, considering he just had a daughter and is completely outnumbered with two daughters and a wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, and that's another thing that we can learn from, you know, the pagan history is that I, I think 
we're looking at, especially in the Scandinavian countries, they were kind of the first ones to come up with really giving women more rights than anyone else. And then there's, there's, I believe there's historical evidence that we, there were warlords that were women, which, which is. I think they uh, found a few archeological things. Yeah, a couple digs. Yeah, well, I watched the old documentary on that where they found like, hey, we thought this guy was a warrior and we went back and looked at the pelvis and this this was a woman. Oh, um, yeah. interesting. Uh, there's one they found. So here's what I struggle with. My, my daughter, Storm, is, uh, um, she's 11 now. And guys would say to me like, oh, what are you going to do when she turns 15? When someone comes over to date her, are you going to be in the living room cleaning your weapons? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. That's just, that, that bothered me. And I was looking around for anyone just talking about, hey, what's a fundamental philosophy on how to be a good father, uh, a father to a daughter. And so I was thinking about it for about a year. And then I wrote, here, here's what I wrote down on my thoughts to it. I'm pulling my notes up right now, promise to my daughter. So here, here's what I came up. And these are my thoughts on, on raising a young woman. A promise to my daughter. I will love you unconditionally, always, no matter what. I will not pamper you. This will forge a resilience that will help you conquer all of life's obstacles. I do not intend to raise a princess, but rather a warrior with fire in her heart and ice in her veins. In my mind, there's nothing you can't do, no job or goal beyond your reach. I will challenge you so that you can stand confidently on your own two feet, independent and strong. And I will set the example on how to treat those you love. So when you choose a partner, it will be someone who lifts you up. I will invest my time and energy in you. So when I'm gone, enough memories of me will be with you forever, but will be with you to keep in your heart forever. Stand tall with your shoulders back. This world is yours for the taking. Yeah, yeah. Like that's you're gonna make Caleb cry place. over here. No, I'm not gonna make him cry. I've done way too much of that. I've done way too much of that this year. I don't know what the fuck's going on with me. Everything's been emotional. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, ever since that's... like ever since Yule, um, but I don't know Jacob sent me a a message that had all like that whole thing that you had uh, just spoken out, and uh, I don't know it hit it hits differently whenever you read it. Like, Thanks. Yeah, I, I just look at, I remember growing up and young girls, girls in high school get pregnant and then their parents throw them out of the house. It's like, what the hell? What are you doing? That's your daughter. Or she gets a piercing or dyes her hair and you toss her out. That's, that doesn't help. And I, I'm sure that as as we learn as a society and, and, and as a people to let go of these constructs and these judgments we have just because people are expressing who they are, that, that we judge them and try and force them into a box. I just, I figure that's not cool. And I, I figure another thing that I've got to be careful of is in, in my heart, I want to solve all her problems for her. 
And really what, when I go solving all my problems, my daughter's problems for her, I'm fucking her over because she needs to learn how to solve life's obstacles on her own. I'm not going to be out there when she hits those real obstacles and the world isn't going to care and it's not going to be soft and it's not padded. So I got to get her, I got to make her tough. And so, and I do that in a loving way, but I do it in a way where I try to coach her through problem solving instead of just trying to pad the world and make it easy for her and, and make her a princess. While in my heart, that's, that's what she has. I just don't want her to be like soft. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, oh, go ahead, Caleb. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I completely get that. And I'm trying to find that, that right balance. And I'm thankfully I've got some time because mine are, my oldest is like three and a half right now. She'll be four in September. And then I just had the new, the, the new one and she is a month and a half, month and three weeks. She'll be a month and three weeks next week, I think. Um, but I want to, I'm just, I, I'm trying to, I want to try to find that correct balance of sternness and caring because the way that my like part of the reason I think that I have that I've only been able to have daughters so far is because my my father was a shitty dad to to his daughter he basically had nothing to do with her whole, her whole life um and then my wife's dad basically verbally abused her and you know talked to her like shit for you know her entire upbringing and you know whenever me and her got together it was all it was always me trying to help her with her depression and everything else because he talked to her like a piece of shit and it, it was his way of making her tough by making yeah, her feel like she didn't love her. That that really needs to be parsed out because, yeah, like, you know, you don't make people hard by naming them Sue, right? Like that Boy Named Sue song. And mm. so by making her tough, I'm not talking about necessarily being hard on her, but it's just also giving her the room to fail so that she can learn. Yeah. Um, and then also there's little things that we do without thinking about them. Like for instance, if I'm going to run a chainsaw, of course, I'll show my son how to do that, but I need to also show her how to do that. You know, we have a little ax throwing target and, and my daughter's really good at it. And so all that stuff, it's, it's like, I want to show her everything. I want her to go be able to turn a wrench like, Hey, come here. We're going to change the oil on the car car, or here's how these power tools work and all that. And just be cognizant of that, that like, she should be able to do everything. Well, I want to see yeah. if I can find the right words for this. Um, but, you know, if you look at any, you know, pre-1900 industrialization society, yes, there was a fairly distinct difference between men's and women's work, but both had work to do. And now the work we do now is much different. Like you said, it's turning a wrench, it's fixing a car, it's changing your oil. Um, so, and we all have to do that. You know, we as society have grown past the need for separate chores because we all have to do work nowadays. And so I think it's it's the, you know, the job of the parent to show like both the sons and the daughters how to survive in this modern world because there is no true distinct difference. I mean, obviously there's, you know, having children and, and going through, you know, the different adolescences and rites of passage. Uh, but for the most part, we all have to survive in this modern crazy world now. Yeah, absolutely. Um... There's so, so 
and, and culturally, it was very different based on where people were from in, in, in Europe, you know, it, the, in, at least in the Bavaria area and the Germanic heritage, the women worked outside with the men and would work farming and try to outwork them and could work very hard as well. And I know, like, my wife Iris, she, she worked as a wrangler um, on different ra uh, ranches. And a lot of times she'd be the only girl out there, you know, living with the other wranglers in there that were all men. And, but she, she's, dang, she can work hard. And that's right. You know, we, we came up with our concept for raising our kids is that we want to raise kind, confident, competent adults, right? Those are, that's our end state. And so since I know that's where I'm going as a parent, then as I'm problem solving as a parent, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm trying to raise a competent adult. And here's my example. Uh, a couple of years ago, Storm climbed up an apple tree and then started crying um, because she got stuck. And initially I thought, oh, I was running over there. I was like, she gets stung by some bees or something. And then I get there and I realize she's just crying because she's stuck. And so I could go rescue her, but that's not making a competent adult. But what I can do is... I can coach her on how to get down and help her navigate that obstacle so that she does it herself. And then, so then, then this is, that's how I make her a competent adult by not solving her problems for her. Um, well, yeah. And I mean, that's something in leadership in general, not just parenting. Uh, that's something I had to learn. You know, the first time I had a leadership position, I was 23, you know, still in college, I got promoted at the restaurant I was working in. And my immediate reaction to seeing someone not do something well was to just do it for them. And I learned that that yeah. doesn't teach them anything. It's the classic, you got to teach them how to fish, not, you know, give them fish. And, you know, and I had to learn those mistakes. It's like, oh, I have to do all the work now because I haven't actually trained them how to do anything. Uh, and so that's something, you know, I'm really grateful for coming into like the nonprofit you know, when people were setting up these gatherings, you know, I'll give them the resources and the tools and the experiences. But at the end of the day, they have to go out and do it. You know, I can't do everything for, you know, for them as well. And hopefully, you know, Ian and Caleb have experienced that when I'm like, here's the tools. Good luck. And I walk away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we, get, we get that all the time whenever you're like, here, come on, you want to meet the gods? It's like, here you go. This is where you need to be. Yeah. And then you leave us. What did you find? <laughs> it's because it's not scalable. If you're doing everything yourself, you can't scale it out. Yeah. No, I definitely, I definitely, that's one thing that, like, if I ever have daughters, is it's something that I, I have told myself to, you know, go along those lines of not necessarily pamper them to be a princess but to raise them as like a warrior uh because i feel like not only does that give a good sense of of confidence that like real confidence then just being like oh i'm daddy's girl i'm daddy's princess he gave me everything you know blah 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 that like you said that doesn't set up that you know that child to be a competent adult you know that is that builds a sense of like entitlement and that that is just plagued the world right now is just such a strong sense of entitlement and so like i honestly and i feel like at least for myself personally i find a woman who is much more like competent and a stronger individual on their own than a, a you know a woman who is super hyper dependent on on their partner to do literally everything for them you know because then what does that do that adds you know more additional burdens to you know, whoever that person's partner is, you know, if that's me, 
or whoever, but it's, I, I that's definitely a, a philosophy and a mindset that I'm definitely going to bring into play if I ever have daughters is to, yeah, teach them to be kind, competent, and what was the third one? I gotta remember this now. It's kind, competent, and kind, confident, competent at all. Confident. That's what confident. it was. Yeah. So, well, yeah. that's what I was worried about. I, I don't want her to get in a situation where when she does choose a partner, she's completely dependent on on them mm-hmm. because that just leads to just the, the choices aren't real. The partnership isn't really set up for success. And mm-hmm. when you when the, when she's in a partnership or any of us are in a partnerships where it's kind of a mutual relationship there and there isn't one above the other, then it's 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 much more healthy. It's a healthier yeah. way to progress. And the onus is on me because she's watching me all the time to, to be very careful about how I treat my wife, right? Because she's going to choose a partner and tolerate treatment based on the example that the two of us set. Mm-hmm. You know, if she ever gets into something where she's somewhat with somebody abusive, she's going to be like, boom, yeah, yeah. And out of that because because she's like, this is not how it's supposed to be. But where she sees it's like, we're not screaming at each other. When we have conflict, we'll sit down and hash it out in a, in a mature manner. Then that's, that's the example that we got to set. And that's the hard thing about leadership is you're never off the clock. Ever. Yeah. Folks are watching you all the time. Especially when you have a YouTube but the thing is is like your youtube channel is so positive that anybody that is critiquing it automatically just makes themselves uh, in my mind it looks bad because there's nothing but good i don't see anything but good there and you know that's that's how i kind of discovered you guys i had written a thing on how to deal with negative emotions based on curiosity kindness and gratitude and um that triad and then someone made a comment on on what i posted and said oh that sounds like something that you know comes up in uh north american north american paganism or something like that which i searched that and then i found your youtube videos on uh where you mentioned north american paganism out in that hike and then opened up this whole new world to me which has just been super positive i really enjoy it that's what the podcast that, and the videos that's wild so you know one of the things that constantly blows my mind is videos like that you know i don't know why i make them when i make them i just get the idea for them and i'm like i just want to talk about it and it's it's crazy to see the threads of fate in a way that lead mm-hmm. you know that making that video over a year ago leads to this conversation in a way and that's to me that's one of the reasons i follow this is because it's just fucking wild sometimes <laughs> <laughs> It, it it's so it's so cool and it makes you it's evidence of a synchronicity where there are these small things that are going to bring us that bring us together from across the country where you know we're all spread out over the country and yet we come together to talk and sh- share this stuff it's 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 fantastic oh i have that moment so many times at gatherings when i look around i'm like well, I mean, Kevin's been doing this snowtour ritual where he does the ritual and everyone puts a rock down and says where they're from. And it's always from like 15 different states from 16 different people. It's obscene. Yeah. 
I had a thought, but I lost it. Guys, do you have thoughts? I have to think of my thought again. There he goes. He <laughs> lost himself. How's that horn? I see a horn on your wall back there by that shamanic drum. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I got that. Uh, it's custom made. Uh, it was I got it from a Ren Fair, but it's like legit, like handcrafted and stuff. It does pretty good. Um, and then that was drum it? is, and that drum is uh, from the Wildlings that we've had on the show before. They made that. It's a deerskin drum. Awesome. My my brother just sent me a a sixteen incher. That's uh, elk on one side and um, bison on the other. It sounds it's it's really cool. Yeah, well, I really want to get into like making my own drum here, but that just sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a neat thing to do to do it like at at one of the uh, um, one of your festivals or gatherings. Oh yeah, well, oh, like you know, a community made drum. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Oh, yeah, that would be kind of cool. We make it from our own hair combined together, <laughs> <laughs> mostly okay. from and Caleb's back hair. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the sea turtles in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> now, kind of going like a thought that I had uh, when we were talking about like the, the leadership uh, situation of you know being a a leader that that actually helps uh you know not just necessarily does the work for the individuals that are under you um you know because obviously they don't learn that way but also being that leader that is there with them doing things so that's like one thing that i i found with my time in the military is i came across a lot of individuals that were in leadership and, and supervision uh supervisor positions where they would basically just tell those who were under them just go do this. And then they would just stay uh, at their desk or whatever, you know, they would just not be out there with their people. And that was always something that I always found super frustrating. And uh, looking back at it, I'm very grateful for the, the first uh, supervisor that I ever had when I first joined. He was very much that type of person that he was always out there with us, no matter how you know how shitty the job was and how like obnoxious it was and i mean i was in florida for my first eight years and it's it is extremely muggy and extremely hot up in the panhandle it's you know i've described it as the butthole of alabama basically um and you know he was always out there and that was a very good setup for me when i started to become into a leadership position where like that's who i want to be like you know because he was always there because i've like I said, I've seen guys who are just like, all right, go do this stuff. And they're going to stay in like an air conditioned office or whatever, you know, or sit in the vehicle that's air conditioned and just watch, you know, and that definitely has, speaks volumes. I feel like to the type of individuals that they basically train and will follow after them because then you're, they're going to have that same mindset, you know, like for me, as soon as I was put into a leadership position, at a much lower rank than most people, I was just like, all right, not only do I have this, this uh, responsibility in a position that normally doesn't have it, I now have to maintain that and not, you know, basically uh, the, the, the drive to not fail. Obviously, you're going to, but at least not make it a waste of time and everything like that. And it was just, oh, it was just something that really struck with me and stayed with me throughout my entire military career was just being that leader that was always there when it got, you know, when 
shit was rough or staying much later to help out and you know not just disappear randomly or like bring things to people that like say they needed water or whatever just to keep everything but everything going and going smoothly i so in the military you kind of had like two different kind of leaders right one type where in in in, this was my observation one type i would work kind of hard for them because if i didn't they'd yell at me come out of that air conditioned office and they'd yell at me. And then the other type was the type I worked hard for because I didn't want to disappoint them. And thinking, when I thought on that long, hard, I'm like, well, what separated the leader that I worked sort of hard for or worked for because I was worried about them yelling at me and what actually made me care whether or not I disappointed this other leader. And what it came down to is the leader that actually treats you with respect doesn't talk down to you and actually cares about you. Those are the people you'll, you'll freaking die for. Mm-hmm. You're like, you'll do anything you can. And, and there are lots of people don't think that the military is like this, but there's lots of folks in the military that are of like, they could be like three or four or five ranks above you. And when they come talk to you, they're still talking to you, talking to you, not at you, and talking to you with respect mm-hmm. and, you know, asking where you're from or what you're into or just those small things that let you know that they actually care. And then they then they just get out of your way and you'll go out there and work. Uh, there was one one chief I worked for in, in, in the Navy. That's that's an E7. And uh, so. Every Friday at the SEAL teams, if you're not deployed or out training, it's usually a half day. So we do our, our physical training, our PT in the morning, and then we'd have to come back and we'd have to do cleanup. And you'd get assigned different areas at the team for cleanup. And so I was asking, or it was this one Friday and the chief I worked for, me and like six other guys, he went off to get our cleanup assignment. And the one that everybody hated the most was the head and that's the same as the latrine or the bathroom mm-hmm. they hated cleaning the bathroom that was the most despised cleanup assignment so he goes off he comes back and we're like hey what did we get for cleanup and he goes well we got we got the head and all of us are like oh oh no and he goes oh no guys this is fun come on i'll show you so we all go down to the bathroom and he's like, look it, just put on gloves, get your hands in the urinal and scrub it. And then he's like, he's in the urinal next to me. And he's like, looking at me going, Oh, Gardner, I'm going to, my, my urinal is going to be way cleaner than yours. Make it a competition. He it yeah. He made it fun. And then after that, we go and we get our, the head inspected and they're like, okay, you guys are good to go. You're out of here. Now we're off for the weekend. After that, Every every Friday when we were there, we volunteered for the West Head and we had fun doing it. And all it was was a perspective shift by that leader. And for all I know, he may have gone in there and volunteered for the head or that's what we got stuck with it. But he came back and he's just like, we got the head so you can either bitch about it or you can have fun with it. Why not have fun with it? And those are the kind of leaders like you talk about that are getting out of that air conditioned space. And they're like, come on, fellas. 
and and now it's like guys and girls come on gang let's get it done mm-hmm. and then you just knock it out and it's a good time and those you know um oh shoot he wrote the book call sign chaos i can't believe i'm i'm dropping his name right now mad dog mattis oh yeah in his book he talked about um being deployed over christmas i've been deployed for a bunch of christmases and they and he said hey this can be your best Christmas or your worst Christmas, but the choice is yours. And that's, it's true. It's all about choices. And those leaders can influence those choices just by setting that example of putting a smile on in your face, in, in, in the face of adversity. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, it's, it's interesting because I actually did something very similar uh, in the restaurant world when I transitioned, because I mostly had to work in the kitchen uh, because of our understaffing. And uh, I was like, guys, we have the smallest kitchen. We have the lowest volume store because that's where they stuck me. I was like, but we're going to have the cleanest fucking kitchen. And so, like, I basically instituted, like, you know, anytime, like, the upper management would come, they would be like, God damn. And they'd be, like, looking around. Everything was fucking shiny. And so then they would go to the more busy stores and be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And they would get bitched at because ours kitchen was cleaner than theirs. And anytime our cooks had to go help at the other restaurants, they'd be like, this place is disgusting. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we, it's like, okay, we might not have the busiest one, but people knew who we were. And that in itself gave everyone a sense of pride. You know, it went from a store that was doing, like, basically all the cooks were doing fucking drugs in the bathroom to the place where, like, the cooks were sitting there cleaning all day and going home feeling good about themselves yeah that's 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 a great that's such an awesome story because you just that last thing you said they were either you know before they were so bummed out but when they felt like they were part of this thing and they had pride in it now they're not doing drugs in the bathroom anymore they're not they're not trying to escape they do out in the car after the shift but you know like Oh, thanks, man. You didn't smoke your crack in the closet. Ah, oh, you're doing so good. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, that was definitely one thing that I noticed. Um, kind of like going into like the, like what you talk about, Jacob, where like, you know, it was a slower paced environment. When I was in, when I was stationed at Herbert Field, you know, we were super fast paced, always in and out deploying, always doing something, you know. And then when I went to New Mexico to Canon, it was a much slower paced base and unit and everything it was just it it almost seemed like it was almost boring to a degree and that's you know myself and a couple other guys that i was with when i was in florida that had um come around the same time that i did uh all of us were looking at each other like this is like this is really slow compared to everything else and we're just like why are people complaining about stuff you know like why are why are they complaining about some of the simplest things compared to what we would have had to deal with you know, people would be like upset that like, oh, if you're you're 30 minutes past your your normal shift time. Like in Florida, we were working 12 to 14 hours daily because, you know, and we didn't really bitch about it until afterwards. You know, we'd be like, all right, cool. We did our job and we're like, damn, that sucked. But at least we got it done and went, you know, went home and, you know, enjoyed ourselves afterwards. But yeah, like in, in New Mexico, it was just the whole time. It, the slightest little bit of work that would pop up or the slightest like thing that they would have to do, they'd be like, oh, I don't want to do it. Ooh. And it was like, what the fuck are you guys complaining about? This is, this is easy something stuff. to like, do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were all like, oh, great. Let's go do stuff. So like, I did notice it where a lot of us who had came from the same, the same base, like when we all came from Florida, because they did like some math, like after this kind of stuff where they sent a bunch of us over there. Uh, and usually those were the guys that were always 
down to do stuff. We volunteered for everything and we just didn't bitch. Those guys that got promotions and rewards and stuff like that, even though like that was not something that I personally went after, but it was recognized and the people that had been at that base for, you know, their entire career. And that was like their first base. And they're like, well, why are these guys who just got here being recognized for stuff? And it's because we don't bitch. We didn't complain. We went out and did the job and came back and did what it well. Mean, because... We got to move all the vehicles from one side of the place to the other side of yeah. the base. Like, like there was some dumb shit we had to do in, <laughs> in New Mexico and dumb shit we had to do in, in Florida, but like you still did it. And it's just, yeah, it was such a, a distinct difference. And I definitely see like, if you, if you put that effort in, especially in a slower paced environment, that gives you more room to make things better because you can actually focus on some of that stuff and and take more pride in, in some of the more mundane things or just some of the simpler things. But that doesn't but make I, I mean, it's that perspective that you gained by working that other job that you now mm -hmm. knew that it wasn't. And that's the trick. And you really, I struggle with like, how do I give my kids perspective like that? You know, um, I know that my default mode is if I'm not careful is to start complaining about silly stuff. And then, then you go and read something about like the Bataan Death March or the, the, the Chosen Reservoir or something like that. And you're like, oh man, I've got no reason to complain about everything. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I'm kind of careful about what I digest anymore because I want to orient myself towards positive things. But it is, it, it, it's, it's really healthy to look at those negative things of some of those really dark portions of our history to, to keep your perspective correct. Because I, yeah. I think that's another issue in this country right now. A lot of people are complaining um, because their perspective is just out of sync with reality. You know, We're, we don't actually have a civil war. And when you turn the faucet, water comes out. Right. Yeah. Oh, I say this all like I was getting on my nieces because uh, I got two nieces. They're uh, 15 and almost 12. And they're raised straight out of the TikTok generation, always on their phones. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they they live in pretty poor environment and stuff like that. And so it, it, they're pretty traditional Ohio trash at this point, honestly, sadly. Um, and so anytime I see them, I try to instill, you know, the realization that the, there is a, such a different world out there, you know, because like they don't even remember things like. You know, it, like everyone says, oh, do you remember like phone booths and stuff like that? But I'm like, do you remember times before DoorDash, before you could like order food sent to your house? Like, yeah. imagine going back in time to our like uh, agrarian ancestors and saying, oh, just imagine the future. You could just use a phone to call somebody to deliver food pre-made to your house. They'd be like, what's a phone? <laughs> <laughs> Pick up a hoe and till the earth what are you talking about you crazy person yeah <laughs> yep. yeah uh shoot you guys want to hear a good one more story you know that was actually uh we're closing into the final 10 and i was like you know what would probably be good to close this out is one good war story it's probably a so, good thing to close it so 2009 in afghanistan and up here behind me that's uh that's task unit, unit Trident. We got a CH-47 from Task Force 160 and, and a couple nice. of uh, Apache gunships that were from the 82nd Airborne Combat Air Brigade in that picture. But uh, we were operating in, in troop size, which is like 40 SEALs plus a couple EOD when we went in the field there. Plus we would be plused up with uh, 
a platoon of Afghan commandos. And up until this point in the deployment, and we're about three quarters of the way through the deployment when this happened was every time we got into a firefight with the Taliban, which was every, every of 23 missions, we got in firefights, 21 of them. And one of our longer firefights was four days long. But uh, we always did the meat stomp on the Taliban. We had better weapons, we had better training, and we had air support and night vision. So it, we, we mauled them and we started to get complacent. And so, you know, I was talking about going into the, into the field with anger in my heart. Like I would thought of the Taliban as savages. And what happens when you think of someone as a savage? Well, you think they're dumber than you and they're people. They're not dumber than you. So we're going to hit this. There was a village in the mountains of uh, north of Kandahar. And it was a Taliban area. So that everybody in the Taliban and there's a Taliban commander living in these two compounds on the edge of the village. So here's the two compounds. The village all goes out this way. And then there's like about a small, small hillside, about the size of a three-story building right behind those compounds and then mountain ranges. So at midnight, the CH-47s drop us off on the other side of the mountain range. And we come off the helicopters, we get in our perimeter, helicopters take off, we take fire. So we start taking PKM, which is their machine gun, belt-fed machine gun fire, and a couple RPGs, rocket propel grenades, comes whizzing over our head and blow up behind us. Luckily, we had an escort from those Apache gunships. They rolled over, and what, what happened was there happened to be two Taliban commanders meeting in this other area that they thought was a secret. And we had inadvertently landed right next to it. Um, and they were there and each of them had like a 25 man security detachment element with them that was now attacking us. And the Apaches went out, just mauled them and took them out, but took an amazing amount of fire. We patrol up and over the mountainsides, come down the other side, take that piece of high ground because we're going to remain over day. So that little three-story uh, hillside, we, we grabbed that and sent our guys down into the compounds. And immediately they find a huge cache of, of weapons and explosives and um, uridium sat phones, passports for the guy we were looking for. He had like three passports and they got him. So we're up on that piece of high ground now they're securing those compounds and now they're searching all the people and searching the compounds and starting to fill sandbags and things for the, cause we're gonna remain over day. We are, I think 30 or 40 kilometers from the nearest forward operating base. So we're a long ways from any help. Um, up on the piece of high ground, we start trying to fill sandbags, but it's rock up there. And, and so a lot of the mountains there are just big piles of rock. And so we were having as much luck filling sandbags as you would in the parking lot of Trader Joe's, right? We got like three sandbags filled and we're like, geez, we're screwed. Um, so now we started walking all over that hillside and finding all the boulders and rocks we could move around and made this really janky half-ass fighting position on that hilltop. And so, our, our, our wall our, around our fighting position was about mid-thigh high. 
sun comes up, all the women and children leave the, uh, uh, the village, which is the Taliban. That was really cool the way they did that. They would always move the non-combatants out of the way before they started fighting, which was much better than like fighting insurgents in Iraq who were like in and amongst them, because that's problematic. So then women and children move, and then we're used to getting attacked straight away. But these guys, they're a little bit smarter. Instead of attacking us straight away, they spent like the next two or three hours from 6 a.m. till about nine, figuring out exactly where we were. And then they start pushing guys up to all the high ground around us. And that's the problem with fighting in the mountains is you can grab one piece of high ground and they can take all the high ground around you if you're just in a So they're pushing up to these high ground positions around us and they're pulling fighters in from another village. <clears throat> around 1030 on this ridge top that's 1200 yards away, we can see all these rocks and we can see a guy pushing a PKM, which is a big belt fed machine gun onto a flat piece of rock. And so we shoot at him with a 300 Win Max sniper rifle. Now there's high winds and it's, you know, a 1200 yard shot. That's a long way. We miss him by like eight inches. He pulls the, the machine gun back to, to the cave or whatever he's hiding behind. And then like 20 minutes later, comes back out again. Well, we're playing this game for him, with him for like the next hour and a half. And now it's like 1030. The sun's up higher. It's like 90 degrees. First thing that comes off is our helmets. And then it gets a little hotter. We decide to take off our body armor. Now think of that. We are shooting at a guy with a machine gun. We're 40 you know, clicks from the nearest base and we take off our body armor and helmets just because we're in our janky fighting position. So around 11 a.m., they'd gotten everybody where they wanted them. And so we were completely surrounded. Now there's two main ridge lines kind of surrounding us and they've got fighting positions on it. And they hit us all at once with a massive salvo of rocket propelled grenades. So there was at least, when I quit counting, 12 rocket-propelled grenades coming in and around our position on the hillside and more into the fighting positions below us. And immediately I'm sucking mud and snaking my way into my body armor and get my helmet back on my head. And the PKM fire picks up after that. So they kicked it off with the rocket-propelled grenades. And then the PKM, which is the machine gun fire, is just they're just laying it almost like indirect fire into our positions and i'm looking up at this wall that's right here and i'm watching it physically erode under the bullet impact i grab my scar heavy so i can get up over that wall and shoot back and i'll tell you what i would no sooner put my face into a table saw than i was putting my head up over that wall that's getting stitched by the bullets so I'm laying there and I'm listening to the, the communications and I can hear, now I can hear big explosions in the compounds below us. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, they're, they're getting overrun. Well, what happened down there, they're taking fire from elevated positions and they built sandbag fortifications on the rooftops, but they had to abandon them because they were taking fire from elevated positions. So now they can't see out. And so the Taliban had gotten close enough to their, the compound walls that they were lobbing grenades into the compounds with them. 
and they had to use their breaching charges to, to put up on the walls and blow holes in the compound walls so they could see out to shoot back and hold the Taliban at bay. We had one aircraft overhead, it was a Predator. And a Predator is a UAV, it's an unmanned aircraft. It had two Hellfires missiles on board, which can do a lot against an individual, but not against you know, masses of troops. And that the Predator's at 30,000 feet and it's looking at the battlefield through a thermal image, right? So it's having difficulty even picking out any of these fighting positions because everybody's the same temperature as the rocks. And the Taliban knows we have thermal imagers and they, they, they have all these countermeasures they use to hide from them. The Pred picks out a couple of guys behind the ridge lines, moving from one fighting position to another and gets them with a hellfire, but that's it. So at this point, every aircraft in the country is coming as fast as it can to our position because, you know, we made it clear over the radio that we're about to get overrun. <laughs> and then another lazy complacent thing we did, like antenna outside of our fighting position, in the base, fell over, lost link with the satellite, and now we have no comms. This is the worst case scenario. And this is when I just given up to the fact that I was going to die that day, right? Task unit commander, he springs over that rock wall and runs out and grabs a SATCOM antenna. It's like Pulp Fiction. I don't know how he didn't get shot. Gets it set up again. We reestablish comms right as the first manned aircraft are getting there. And there are a couple of French mirages show up. And so... The Joint Tactical Air Controller, who's one of one of my SEALs who has the qual, is right next to me. And I'm also, I'm on dual comms, so I'm listening to our inter-squad comms, and I'm listening to the fires net where the guy is talking to the aircraft. And the, and the French pilots show up, and they ask for a nine line, which is what we give them where to drop bombs. But he's like, I can't give you that because we can't put our heads up right now. And he goes, we're taking fire from these two main ridge lines. Can you guys give me a show of force over these two main ridge lines? And what a show of force is, is that's when the pilots will fly as low as those pilots are willing to fly over the enemy to let the enemy know that, hey, there, there's aircraft here. So a minute later, <clears throat> the French pilots come back over the radio and they go, ho, 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 stand by, here we come. <laughs> And they're just barreling over these ridge lines. <laughs> and as you know, when those aircraft fly low, they're kicking off IR flares to confuse any heat-seeking missiles that the enemy might have. So they rip over the two ridge lines super low, man. I got goosebumps thinking about it. And then what does this do? This forces all the Taliban because they hate our aircraft like you would. They all get down. And now... We can all get back up because there's not that incredible suppressing fire and start laying fire. And we know where that one guy is. So we're putting fire down in his position. The guys below us are just throwing out mortars as fast as they can. And they've got, uh, so we had the mortars with the proximity fuses. So they would detonate 25 meters above the deck and lay down a big frag pattern. So those help keep people's heads down too. So we're doing that. Now it's an even fight, right? But the reaction force is still four hours away because they're going to drive from, you know, this, this base that's, that's way away. So it's not evident that we're going to become overrun immediately, 
but it's also not evident that we're going to have enough ammo to last four hours. And then a B-1 bomber checked on station. Ladies and gentlemen in the audience, B-1 bombers have bombs to waste. And that pilot, she sounded like an angel when she said, I'm going to give you 4,000 pounds of ordnance. I'm going to drop eight 500-pound bombs. I'm going to give you four on each ridgeline. They're going to detonate 50 meters off the deck, and they're going to be spaced out 100 meters apart. And the B-1 bomber can do it all in time. And she said that as coolly and calmly as if she was saying, hey, Jay, I'm going down to Starbucks. You want that latte you always get? So she says weapons release impact in 30 seconds. And then we get a 10 second countdown and then boom, 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 eight bombs, four over each ridgeline, air bursting all at the same time. It was like the 4th of July. Everybody cheered, except for the Taliban. They didn't cheer because we killed or wounded half the guys that had come out to fight us that day and uh, saved our skins. I learned a lesson about complacency and taking the enemy for granted and, you know, like thinking, oh, well, I'm better than them and all that because they almost got us that day. And then uh, another lesson that I learned was uh, it got to be 112 degrees up there that afternoon and we didn't have any shade in our fighting position and uh, we ran out of water. We ran out of water around 1.32 in the afternoon, and then it wasn't safe because we were still in a low-level firefight until dark for us to go down and get more water. And then we also, we extended there for another 24 hours. Um, they flew into the helicopters, kicked out some more weapons and ammo that we asked for, and we stayed there for another day and fought, which was uh, pretty badass. But uh, pulling this full circle, that brief... <laughs> That pre-brief that I sent you, uh, that I sent you, Jacob, that was the brief before this op. Oh, so yeah. I'm talking a bunch of smack about how we're going to go kick the Taliban's butt that night. And yeah, and you're like, I'm going to come oh, back for breakfast tomorrow or something we, like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh so that's gosh. a good one. I got a ton more, but that's like, uh, I think that's that's one of the better ones i mean another thing on the air force i got i gotta shout i gotta call this out man there is the air force kazavaks our call sign pedro yep. those mugs are badass they are the best ever and 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 by mugs i'm including women because there's women pilots and crew in that too but when we were in that four-day firefight and that was down in a town called marja they would be just they could tell when the, the firefights were getting really hot and they would just launch on their own and they would be waiting. And so as soon as we would call in, hey, we've got a wounded guy, they would just come in and there's like rocket propelled grenades and machine gun fire coming in and, and they're just coming in. I'm like, God dang, that helicopter is going to get shot down, land on a rooftop, throw a wounded guy on there, and then they would take off. And it would absolutely bring me to tears of pride when I saw what my, my uh, Air Force brothers and sisters would put their lives in danger to, to save us. And then that, you know, just our country as a whole, we, it, it's, it's good stuff, but uh, big shout out to the Air Force as whole, specifically 
the B-1 pilots and then the Pedro crews and everybody in Air Force Special Operations. Yeah, usually we get shit on and get called the chair force. That's nice to hear. I think I did. I message you and I was like, he's not the chair force. Like, I specifically said, like, Ian's not the chair force. So, you did. <laughs> I, he actually, he actually did things in person, but yeah, because I, I primarily worked with um, I worked with spooky gunships. I'm trying to think, yeah, because I'm pretty sure, yeah, I legitimately was just like, yeah, no, Ian's cool. He's not the chair for us. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I worked, I worked with with the spooky gunships for the eight years I was in uh, Florida. So, yeah, yeah, I that they're the AC-130s are awesome. I I know several times we've we've run them Winchester. Yeah, they shot was... up everything they had. <laughs> it was it was sad it was a sad day when i when they retired them and they flew the last one i was just like damn that was at new mexico by the time that had happened so well damn i don't even so know where cool. to go with that like <laughs> <laughs> i think we need to have him back on for just a war stories podcast yeah, I, I have to have a fireplace yeah. going <laughs> uh, oh, i'm definitely up to do it again fellas yeah, no, uh, yeah, truly. I mean, it's it's been great having you on. Uh, thank you for reaching out and uh, and sharing that story too. I mean, yeah, that was a uh, whoo. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Uh, but yeah, no, um, it's it, yeah. It, I'm speechless now. I'm just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think uh, the best lesson to end that on is kind of what you said there. Is you know it, what you said about everyone coming together, seeing what the Air Force would do to protect you guys. You know, I think we can all give each other a lot of shit, you know, especially in the military. I've been very much witness to the shit talking there is in the military. <laughs> My fucking God. <laughs> you guys never yeah. shut up about the Marines. <laughs> they like their crowns, man. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the same thing within the, the faith to some degree, you know, seeing everyone come together under a united mission of whether it's protecting the country or protecting your brothers and sisters or honoring the gods, having something that is above you i think is one of the best ways to make you the best human possible uh so with that i think it's time to end this episode so thank you everyone for listening in i uh, hope you enjoyed the story and and jason thank you so much for being on the show and, and sharing that story and, yeah. and sharing all you did awesome, uh, where can where, where can people find you if they want to find you oh um probably instagram at jason.m.gardner and uh at the echelon front from for my work but uh I want to do a big advertisement well that's you know you the very least life. you get in the hour plus podcast you know, good advertisement. <laughs> hit us up at echelonfront.com we solve problems through leadership all of your problems are leadership problems there you go all right well everyone thank you so very much and until the hall let's go let's go oh, oh. <laughs>